A few weeks past, I came across an old Girl Scout handbook in an antique store. I have a six-year-old daughter, you know, and this was right up her alley. It's full of all sorts of things every respectable young lady should know, like keeping chickens, good citizenship, tie knots, properly ordering one's wardrobe, and basic first aid. It also includes, as my daughter read to me, the proper way of making introductions. So, allow me to steal a page from the 1947 Girl Scout Handbook to begin our exploration of virtue. Dear listener, may I present Mr. Plato, St. John Chrysostom, and Miss Charlotte Mason? Now you say, oh, how do you do? The Commonplace is a podcast for the new homeschooling mom delighted by the ideals and principles of a classical Charlotte Mason education, but who feels unsure of how to get started on the practical side of nourishing a soul on the good, the true, and the beautiful. I hope you find camaraderie here as we get our bearings in the world of old ideas and old books, of wisdom and virtue, and of the means of grace by which God works in this world through the commonplaces, which includes your home. So, if you're like me, trying to offer your children an education unlike your own, and wondering if you can create an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life of such richness, I'm here to tell you, I think you can. I'm your host, Autumn Kern, and I'm pleased to welcome you to The Commonplace. If this podcast had a patron saint, who is not a saint, it would be C.S. Lewis. The man finds a way to make it into almost every episode. It was old Jack who gave me my first intentional boundary in my literary life. Read more old books than new books. Being naturally bookish and studying history for undergrad, I read books about old things. But that's not quite the same thing as reading old books, is it? Lewis gives another piece of literary advice in his introduction to St. Athanasius's On the Incarnation, when he says that while it shows a bit of humility to be wary of meeting the great old writers face to face, it is actually us to whom they wish to speak. And luckily for us, it's typically easier to read them than to read about them. I believe his exact example is one of our philosophers today, Plato. Reading Plato, he said, is far easier than reading modern philosophers who've written hundreds of pages about Platonism. I can confirm this is true. But there's another angle here I think important. The works of those like Plato, St. John Chrysostom, and Charlotte Mason should be considered our rightful inheritance. We shouldn't be wary of reading them. We should actually see them as a gift intended for us. G.K. Chesterton, who we will see later in this miniseries, actually talks about this in an essay called On Man, Heir of All the Ages. Did you catch that? Heir of All the Ages. While the wisdom and folly of the past are our birthright, it's easy to forget about the past in the rushing waters of information in the modern age, or, at our worst, we just despise the past. If we are heirs, we're the kind who crinkle our noses at the family heirlooms and leave them in the back corner of the attic. We lose whole bodies of thought and the practical pursuit of the good life. We leave ourselves unjustly disinherited. This will not do in these commonplaces. So, following Lewis's advice, I stopped buying new books, even about old things, and I started hunting for old books, trying to meet the greats face to face. It's been one of the nicest things I've ever done for myself. 
Spending time in the company of the old is much like having a mirror before you that reflects you in a slightly different light. When you read new books, they too can be a mirror, but one that reflects you as you are. It is your time and place, and after all, you are formed in the image of your time and place. But to meet with the old is to be measured by their time and place, by their wisdom or folly. And when you're faced with great wisdom, the image reflected back demands you arrange your life, your thoughts, and your loves according to this realm in which you find fellow souls sojourning towards truth, goodness, and beauty. And that realm is the good life. And the good life is the pursuit of virtue. And so now we begin. We've journeyed with Mason for the better part of a year and a half, and we've spent a jolly holiday with Plato over the first part of this season. And as such, I'm going to continue under the assumption that you've listened and mulled over those many episodes before today. So that way, our newest philosopher can be our guide and anchor through the idea of a soul as a city. St. John Chrysostom, henceforth referred to as St. John, was a 4th century archbishop of Constantinople known for his eloquence, which actually earned him the name Golden Mouth, and for his work on the Divine Liturgy, which is still practiced almost every Sunday in Eastern Orthodox churches around the world. I came across one of his treatises on child-rearing, and it struck me, as many old things do, with its practical nature. While there are some oddball instructions, like giving your sons neither too soft of couches nor sweet-smelling perfumes, there are practical instructions that touch every part of a child. There are boundary lines that we might find fall in very pleasant places. I think there's this wariness in the broad church today to say definitively what a parent ought to do. Even we Christians are too deep in the waters of you do you. But giving explicit instructions as it pertains to cultivating virtue was not a problem for St. John, Plato, or Mason. I think they thought it was their duty to pass on the keys of wisdom through a very similar idea, the soul as a city. As any mother knows, the soul of a child is a precious thing to be guarded and labored over. Most Christian mothers prioritize the care of the soul or the spiritual life above all else, believing that molding, forming, and training of the soul is eternal. And being mindful that your mind and body are required in the keeping of a soul, I think this is right. And so did our other philosophers today. All believed in the power of and need for habit in guiding the soul to maturity. Guiding the soul is a really big deal, and it's necessary to actually cultivate virtue. Mason includes discipline as one of her three instruments. Plato believed habits were trained through imitation, but only if practiced from childhood on. And St. John believed that children needed to be given a pattern of good in order to imitate it as habit. These habits, along with self-restraint and deepening wisdom, would create, in St. John's work, a soul city for God. I think what always gets me when I'm reading old books is how it can almost sound like I'm reading a new book. Mason was worried about the schools at the turn of the 20th century, writing about the spiritually and intellectually wounded youth graduating with disordered loves and empty leisure. Her critiques of the literature, practices, and outcomes of the Victorian schools sound almost like a homeschool mom on Instagram today. There's nothing new under the sun and all that. Which is why we can go farther back to St. John in the 4th century, the 300s, and see his growing concern that people were replacing the true goal of education, which is virtue, with lesser things. I know I've said it quite a bit this season, but the understood point of education has primarily been moral formation or virtue throughout history. But of course, there have always been distractions and pulls away from this goal. Where we find our footing again is back in the conversation of virtue. This is the thread that weaves through the centuries, places, peoples of the past. 
Who are the ones calling people back to education as the cultivation of virtue? Follow them. Stick to the narrow path. Aim for the celestial city. And this was St. John's charge for parents at a time when he thought there were too many people trying to pull education away from its goal of virtue. He believed the work of parents was difficult and holy. That the slow shaping of a soul required the utmost care, intention, and in his words, guarding. His caution is against encouraging wrong longings and desires, or what we usually call wrong loves. He believed that good precepts are impressed on the soul when children are young. Like if you can imagine wax drying into a hard seal, then you've got the right idea. Help them imitate goodness in their habits on the front end, and they will harden into character in the future. Which means that things happening in the early life of a child are incredibly important. Every child comes, as Mason says, with the possibilities of good or evil, and it is our job to find the good qualities God has supplied so we can cultivate them, and to note the faults so we can help battle them. This right here is echoed in Plato, Mason, and of course, St. John. Now I know that we common moms are not all in the early years of formal education, but even if you are mid-redirecting your educational philosophy in the home, St. John's instruction on the five senses that we're going to use as our guardianship today is still applicable and helpful. If you do, however, have little ones around you, stand at the ready. A soul city must be guarded if the city is to, one day, be ruled well. So, what is a city, and why are these three using it for the soul? Well, just as a city is good and bad, the thoughts and reasonings of a soul are good and bad. In a city, some are thieves, but some are honest men. Some make war, some work steadily. Some receive orders, and some are free. In all cities, there must be laws to encourage the good and laws to prevent evil. There's always a quiet watch for uprisings and a hope to move closer towards that which is true, good, and beautiful. So the soul of a child is a new city, with citizen strangers who have no experience yet, and so while they are, as Mason says, immature, they're also, as St. John says, more easily distracted and more willing to readily accept the laws given to them. We all know it's easier to shape the inclinations of a boy than to change the character of a man. And St. John wanted parents to understand our role in this time of life is like being a king, ruling over the child's soul in these early formative years. When we ask to what end ought we aim, all three philosophers give us the same answer. We aim for the heavens. Yeah, I know, even Plato, a pagan, believed that man ought to look to the heavens to found a city within himself. But of course, St. John and Charlotte Mason had the fullness of this answer in mind when thinking of guarding a soul for a life built for service to Christ, the King. So, in the city of Mansoul, as we'll now call it, to steal from Mason, who stole from John Bunyan, there are citizens that travel in and out of the city who are either rightly guided or corrupted. They come in or out through the tongue, the ear, the nose, the eyes, and the skin. It's the five senses, and these are the gates of St. John's soul city, and the areas at which mother teachers stand at the ready to bring truth, goodness, and beauty in the atmosphere, discipline, and life of their homes and home educations. The busiest gate is the tongue, which any mom knows when in the company of young children who have many questions, ideas, thoughts, and feelings to share with you. I love St. John's image of the child's speech. It should be of pure gold, not just gold leaf, filled with the noblest, most beautiful ideas, because our city is not being crafted for any mere mortal, but for a king. It reminds me of that C.S. Lewis bit, wherein he says to think of yourself as a house, and that God is coming to rebuild you. 
You thought you were being made into a decent cottage, but it turns out God is making you into a palace, a palace in which he intends to live. When you believe that your child's soul is meant for the presence of God, the bar is raised much higher than having nice or sweet kids. We start to think about fashioning citizens worthy of the city. We start thinking about excellence. We start thinking about virtue. And while it's difficult work to train a tongue, St. John lays it out for us like this. First, you must train a child in right speech. Fill their mouths with the words of scripture. Give them lovely speech. Equip them with the words they should be saying. This is when one of my favorite Mason quotes comes to mind as an addition. She said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live, whether it be spoken in the way of some truth of religion, poem, picture, scientific discovery, or literary expression. By these things men live, and in all such is the life of the Spirit. The world is alive with the presence of God, and there are many ways that you can use that to train your child's speech. But this is also why we avoid twaddle in things like literature, music, and film. You have to think, do you want to form the habit of harmful speech for the hearer or the speaker in your home? Now, second, drive strangers away so no corruption mingles with citizens. When reading this, I felt convicted as a mother teacher. With many little ones trying on various virtues and vices in their speech, it can feel impossible to play whack-a-mole with every stranger that appears in the midst of the good citizens at the gate of the tongues of my children. I mean, so much comes out of the mouth of any one of my kids on a given day. I'm raising three children with great love of speaking. I can't figure out from whence it came. But anyway, I was reminded of a helpful counsel from Mason. We can't despise our children, by which she means leaving undone what we ought to have done for them. But we also can't give them a contrived environment. To the first part, it's our duty to train our children in right speech, to steer them away from wrong speech. We're under authority just as our children are under authority, and we can't neglect this duty. But within that duty, we're not going to create an environment or a family rule or a discipline strategy that removes the need for a child to learn to actually be good, not just look good. They will try on catchphrases and stinker name-calling and things they call jokes. But this commonplace childhood life is also the ordained stage in which they can learn right from wrong in which they will heed your counsel, even if it takes time, and in which they grow their wills to the point of accepting or rejecting the good citizens that strengthen man's soul. As we help their citizens towards virtue, we also can't manipulate them through fear, love, suggestion, or bribes. It's one thing to scare or bribe a child into not saying something. It's another thing to lay a long track of beautiful ideas, faithful habits, and models worth imitating in the home. So, in case you feel like you've already scored 0 out of 2 on St. John's List, keep that context in mind. Third, be zealous on a few things. Speak ill of no man, do not be contentious, and do not swear. Teach the child to be fair and courteous, and as best you can, enlist the adults who regularly interact with your child to hold him to this standard. And since we're pulling from such old philosophers today, that list includes the tutors, servants, nurses, cooks, governesses, maids, housekeepers, and the like. You know, for all those you have around your house, too. <laughs> Reading the old guys, there is always something that just does not fit with your ordinary life. In our Habits 101 course in Common House, we've been slowly working through Mason's many categories of habits, and I've been explaining which sets are intentionally trained and which are sort of caught in the atmosphere of the home. 
Mason was also adamant that parents must teach their children to be courteous in speech, to only speak well of others, and to treat all people as fellow image bearers, always searching for the bit of good that is in everyone. This is one of those that may require some verbal instruction, but is primarily modeled for the child and how the mother speaks of others, how she treats others, and how she even shares in conversations about culture, concerns, and yes, education. In the classical world, there's this phrase that the teacher is the curriculum, and I see it echoed throughout home education when it comes to the responsibility of the mother to be one who is cultivating virtue in herself. Imitation, a chief practice in classical education, requires the imitation of the actions of another, or, as Plato wrote, an ideal. While we give our children a feast of ideas, characters, heroes, and tales to imitate, we as mothers are the central figures in their imitation. It wouldn't be a bad thing to hold ourselves to these standards laid out in St. John's City. So, before we move on to hearing, or the ears, I have to tell you something encouraging. St. John says it only takes two months to form this habit of speech. Before you think that seems too short, because surely you've been working far longer than that in your home, please note that Mason had also mentioned the ridiculously short time of one month in training more pleasant habits. I doubt either would have written it in ink if they did not have convincing evidence of the time frame. Just some food for thought. Alright, on to hearing. St. John's counsel is obvious. Nothing corrupt may tread upon the threshold. But he gives a few more clarifying parameters. First, children shouldn't hear frivolous things from those in authority. He actually says a child can hear these things from servants, but never from his parents, tutors, or those in positions over him. I think this means we need not panic when our children hear a dumb joke from a friend, as long as the norm in their life is to hear our really excellent jokes. Second, a child shouldn't hear anything harmful from anyone. Think of them like tender shoots in need of tender care. If you were building a beautiful city made of gold and fine jewels in order for a king to come and live there, would you let just anyone come in and work on the project? you would not. So something harmful is different than something juvenile, and I think you know the difference. Third, it's not only that you guard against lesser things, you also have to give them better things. From Plato to Mason, the encouragement has been to give them the very best stories, the very best language, the very best histories and such. And one reason why, as St. John notes, is that it teaches the child to marvel at what is good. To put that in Mason speak, the child wonders or is in awe. In doing that, the soul will be aware of the benefit of good stories. It will long for more. Start with stories of scripture, but tell them in your own words and show your true enjoyment and love for them. The child will recognize them when he hears them at church and will be delighted to hear his stories, as Mason would say. Ask them to tell you the stories after a while so you grow in the soul a wealth of true riches, a sense of wonder which helps shape how they move in the world, and a longing that can only be satisfied in right living through a life of virtue. When we get to smell, St. John doesn't have much to say, and honestly I found myself laughing at most of what he does say. He states plainly that the nose is for breathing air, not sweet odors. None of those essential oils, guys. But why does he say this? Well, his thinking is as follows. Sweet odors relax the mind and body, which allow pleasures to be fanned into flame. Do you remember what we learned from Mason about reason? It's a yes man. Once you've accepted an idea, reason will find a way to tell you you are right. And I'm going to chalk this one up to that process of reasoning. So onward to the eyes. These are exceptionally difficult gates to guard as they're high up and wide open, but he does give a few tips. 
First, avoid the theaters so the child will not suffer corruption through lewd actions performed by inappropriate persons with improper speech. While you can certainly find that in our theaters in the United States, I think the principle here can be applied to the many forms of media, entertainment, and content we have aplenty today. This could be books, it could be shows, social media, parades, podcasts, YouTube, or if you're like me living in a city, a casual walk down the block to the market. And St. John adds a bonus on this one that I took to heart. Have your servants run ahead to warn the children in case something or someone unsavory waits down the street. I haven't figured out which kid I'm going to make the run-ahead servant. I'm just kidding. I have to guard their eyes. But I think this must be harder than it may have been in the 4th century for us now. St. John says to keep your young boys out of crowds of women, and so I have to assume it was possible to avoid the mass public in a way that is not possible for most of us today. But I think the spirit of the council is one we can all pursue. Be mindful of the places you go, the sights you see, the content you hand to your children. Just as we don't guard only against the bad at each gate, we must also put in the good. St. John says to give harmless pleasures to the eyes by giving them much time and nature. We know how nature can be a balm to the soul, and we know how Mason felt about the need for time out of doors. But even Plato believed the natural order of the natural world was worth studying, and, wouldn't you know it, the soul had to be ordered likewise. St. John ends with touch or the skin, and it's as funny to me as the nose. He is insistent that we're raising athletes and therefore are not allowed to give our sons soft couches. <laughs> no, really, that's one of his main points. No soft couches. I do wonder what he'd think about the Mason mom world linking to all of their favorite products for comfort. But I digress. Clearly, the work of guarding the gates is the work of the mother teacher in the early years. An immature person with immature tastes cannot be trusted to guard himself. No, that takes years of training, imitating, marveling, and loving. Eventually, though, the gatekeeper will become the child, as their will is strengthened to say yes to that which is good for man's soul and to reject that which harms it. Which is, after all, the point of education if you spent all last year with me and Miss Mason. To offer the knowledge, practices, and life of the world as God made and governs it through the pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty is the work. This is the only soil in which virtue can grow, and the boundary line for the life of the soul city. So while we followed St. John Chrysostom for most of the episode, I can't help but close out with the favored lady of the podcast, because as usual, she said it best. Of all the fair lands, there is none more fair than the country of the kingdom of man's soul. Guard it faithfully. I'll see you guys in four weeks.